The hashtag MeToo conversation in our culture has reminded us that we're broken. For many, it has inflamed already troubling passages of scripture where women are mistreated. Dana Gresh has wrestled in her discomfort and found some peace. Out of it has come a powerful message asserting that we are all a part of this story. We are either the abused or the abusers or we are the bystanders, but no one gets a buy right now. Dana offers you the peace she's found in an invitation to be a part of the change in this message delivered at her alma mater, Cedarville University. Recently, I was asked, what is one passage of scripture that's most troubling to me and how have I come to peace with it? I really didn't want to answer that question but I'm standing there in front of a camera and I have no choice. Because the honest answer is this, it's not one passage of scripture, but kind of a collection of them that we might call the misogyny chronicles. Because I don't like the way women are sometimes portrayed and treated in the pages of scripture, especially in the Old Testament. Grieves my heart to read some of those stories. Makes my blood boil. And that's not a new thing for me. I've always kind of been the person that is very much reactive when I see injustice against women. I remember just maybe a year or so after I graduated from Cedarville University, my husband and I lived in Rolla, Missouri, and we had a brand new baby boy. And I was in the nursery placing him in the crib for a nap when I saw right outside of the window a car suddenly screech to a halt and a man jump out of the passenger side. He was inflamed with anger and he ran around to the driver's side where the window was open and began banging the head of the woman against the steering wheel. I laid the baby down. I ran through the house screaming, Bob, call the police. And I ran out to the car as quickly as I could and I stood in front of that woman and I put my arms out and I said, get away from her. Meanwhile, my husband comes out and gets in front of me. <laughs> Later would say, honey, what were you thinking? That's my job, tell me. And, um, but I didn't, I, I just had to react. I had to protect her, there wasn't time. And it was so sad that when the police finally came, that that young woman with blood streaming down one side of her face said that I wasn't telling the truth and that he hadn't done anything to her. And they drove away. And I watched helpless, knowing she would be abused again. And that's not the only story of when Bob and I have really just felt like God called us to interact and intervene for women. I remember when we were in business in that same town, there was a case where a man was accused of sexually abusing some teenage girls. And there was a news reporter that was saying it wasn't possible, those girls were slandering his name, and the reason, the sole reason it wasn't possible was because he went to church with that man. And through a number of events, uh, my husband and I owned a monthly magazine at the time, we wrote some compelling reports on the article, and it was eventually proven that he was in fact guilty. And we were able to be a part of a team ministering to those girls who weren't just abused by him, but then were abused by his lies afterwards. And probably the most painful thing was about 15 years ago, when we became aware of some domestic violence in one of our international ministry partners' marriages, 
We intervened to stop it. And the cost of it was a very precious part of our ministry being removed from us, as once again, nobody stood with us. And so I've always kind of been the girl that says, oh no, you don't, not on my watch. And that's why it's really difficult and painful for me sometimes when I read these passages in scripture and my blood boils. But how have I come to peace with it? Well, a few things. One is this, as I read those stories, there are people with blood who boil way back in the Old Testament. Because many of those stories, as you read them, they result in war as people get in between those who perpetrated evil and those who've received evil. Some examples of that include Dinah, who was raped by Shechem. Genesis 34, seven actually says in one version, nothing is more disgraceful than rape and it should not be tolerated in Israel and war ensues. There's an unmarried concubine who is raped to the point of death. I wish we knew her name. I wish we could treasure her name in our hearts, but we don't know. What we do know is that 400,000 men rose up with swords to avenge her death. And then there's the very troubling story of Tamar raped by her brother Amnon. In the pages that follow, we see a family at war, not just a nation at war. Good men led those wars. The heinous sin of abuse and rape did not go unnoticed. It was met with righteousness. Another discovery that I've made, and this was just last night, as I got into town here, I drove over to Beth Porter's house because I always like to get a little dose of Ma Porter when I'm in town. That's what my daughter Lexi called her when she was here. I bet some of you do too. And uh-huh, I thought so. And um, she told me that she had just taught at a conference on some of the troubling passages in the book of Judges when it comes to the topic of women and how they were treated. And as she was wrestling through that, she turned to someone for help. Now, who would you turn to if you were studying the Old Testament? Of course, it was Dr. Chris Miller. And Beth sent me her notes, and there's a quote in her notes from him that brought a lot of comfort to my heart and a lot of healing to my heart. It says, women suffer the effects of sin when culture decays. In fact, the treatment of women can be seen as a barometer of the nation's relationship with God. But ultimately, um, one way I came to peace with these passages was actually very troubling, because as I read them recently, I thought to myself, who are we to judge? Look at our culture. Look at our churches. Are we doing any be better? I don't think so. We're pretty broken right now. And we have to rise up and do something about it. Here's the place I've come to that's given me true peace, and it's this. I cannot fix the behavior of Shechem and Amnon, but I can fix me. I can fix the way I support, protect, and respect women, and I can pray that my words will influence you to do the same thing. It's easy to point a finger, 
it's much harder to actually put actions when to it's much harder to put actions to something when your own blood boils. So if your blood's boiling a little bit about what you read in the pages of scripture and what you see in our culture right now, then I beg you to listen to what I say today and to be a person who's not just full of words but actually put some actions to what's making your blood boil. Today, I want to invite you to change yourself. Our culture and our churches didn't become the way that we are, except that there are broken individuals within them. We are a mass of the abused. You're sitting here today, you're either one of the abused. We are a mass of abusers. You know, the statistics are really scary. And I don't know whether, which ones are actually correct, but somewhere between one in three and one in 10 women sitting in our churches have been abused. Well, somebody abused them. That means sitting in our churches and sitting in this room right now and listening to my voice at this moment are also the abusers. And those of you that don't fall into one of those two categories, you're bystanders. I fall into that category, I'm a bystander. But every single one of us, whatever category we're in, we need to look at what's happening around us, what God's word says to us, and what's happening in us and to us. And we have to respond because we are either a part of the change or we're a part of the problem. There's no middle ground. Now here's something I wanna say before I open up the passage that God's led me to today, which I have to tell you up front is a passage that's a genealogy. Now doesn't that sound real exciting? The Lord assigned me this difficult task and then he said, how about we read the genealogy of Jesus Christ? I said, wow, this is gonna be a riveting chapel, Lord. (laughs) But I saw some things in there that were very compelling to me and I hope they'll be compelling to you today. But before I read them, I wanna say this. While I'm discouraged about how women are treated, I'm also discouraged about how men are treated in our culture. The emasculation has gone far too far. And I don't believe, well, I do believe in the goodness of men and the strength of women, but I do not believe they have to be at the expense of one another. And that's really what, that's really kind of what the cultural conversation is telling us quite often. And so I want to read this passage of scripture to you. And ironically, There are a few women's names in this genealogy, which doesn't happen too many times in the Bible. And every time you hear a woman's name, gentlemen only, I'm gonna ask you to do something insane. I want you to stand up, put your fist in the air as if you think women are awesome, because I know you do think that. (laughs) And I want you to shout, go girls, all right? So, Here's, here's how, here's, we're gonna practice right now. Okay, I've lost them now. They're thinking about girls. All right, so we're gonna practice right now. I'm gonna say my own name, and you get to say, go girl, all right? One, two, three, Dana. Go girl. That's good. All right, here we go. Open your Bibles to Matthew 1. I think you guys got this. Now remember, every time I, you hear the name of a woman, you're gonna jump up and say, go girls, all right? Here we go, Matthew 1, 1. 
the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David, the father of Solomon, and the wife, the, uh, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportion to Babylon. And after the deportion of Babylon, the names are too difficult for me to pronounce. So, go to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So there's a few things I observed. It feels good to be cheered for, doesn't it, girls? Yeah. Maybe you could return a go guys for that. One, two, three. Okay, so there's a few things, now that I have you all a Twitter with one another, there's a few things I noticed as I read this passage considering the value and treatment of women. The first is this, God includes women, period. God includes women in the lineage of Jesus, five women, and that's a really big deal because it broke literary tradition of the day. And God says, no, 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 the other list, they might not include the women, but I include the women, they have value. And I ask you today, do you include the women when you tell the stories? Do you include the women when you build the teams? Do you include the women when you form leadership? Do you include the women when you do great things? And I'm not just talking to the guys, because girls, we can be catty. Do you include the women? God did, and Matthew, one of Jesus' 12 closest disciples did when he wrote down the lineage of Jesus Christ. The second thing I observed was this. God used these women no matter what their stories looked like. God used these women no matter what their stories looked like. Let's look at their lives just a little more closely. Let's start at the bottom. First, there's Mary, the virgin. I don't believe she was sinless, as some Christian denominations do, but I believe she lived an especially grace-filled life. And I know women in my life who, who are like that. They've just by God's grace been sheltered from a lot of temptation and brokenness, and they live beautifully. But from there, the list gets pretty messy. Let's go back up to the top. The first one we come to is Tamar. Now this is not the same Tamar who was raped by Amnon, but the Tamar who is written about in Genesis 8. She was a woman who found herself widowed not once but twice, and then she was spurned by her family rather than cared for by the men in it. And she finds herself childless, so she plays a prostitute to have a child. 
Her inclusion in this list raises an important question about the social responsibility and justice, especially in relation to women. It's not a mistake. Those men in her life should have cared for her. And God is illuminating both her triumph through life and brokenness and the brokenness of the men who should have been there to care for her. She uses her only resource, which is her body, for self-preservation and to confront an ungodly and unworthy leader, Judah. She practices self-preservation out of desperation. And then there's Rahab. We know right away what her story is and what title we'd give to her. She's the non-Israelite secular prostitute who plays the hero. I call her a shero. Her inclusion reminds me that it's our faith, not our pedigree, that justifies us. So maybe you stand on a good pedigree. That's not enough. And maybe you don't. You can still be included. Like Tamar, she's a prostitute, and she uses the tool that she has. She's also deceptive toward her king in relationship to the spies who she both respects, believes, and fears. She practices self-preservation out of fear. And then there's Ruth. She's a little more difficult to figure out because Ruth kind of veers towards the merry side of goodness and integrity and self-control. She's the faithful non-Israelite daughter who sees the needs of her Jewish mother-in-law and she won't leave her side. She puts aside her own good and her own welfare and her own future to take care of one woman. Now, most of the story is pretty beautiful, but there is that one little chapter in her story where she makes very forward sexual advances towards a man named Boaz. She shows up in his bedroom, and he likes it. She practices self-preservation too, but her inclusion reasons that we should offer grace to ourselves and to others because, you know what, you might live most of your life really good, really well, really abiding by God's word and have that one night of passion or that one season of passion that maybe you wish you could have done just a little differently. She also practices self-preservation, but she practices it out of a root of goodness and good intentions for her mother-in-law. And then there's the wife of Uriah. Her name's not even in there. And I was thinking, why isn't her name in there? And I thought, you know, is it possible that God also wanted Uriah's name to be in there? He was also a victim in the story. But Bathsheba, she's the married mistress of King David. Or was she a mistress? I mean, there's a lot of ways we can read that story, and it's a hard story to read. Did she bathe naked or almost naked on that rooftop, hoping to gain a glance from the king? Were her eyes on him, even as his were on her? Or is it possible she was the victim of a man in power? Hashtag me too.
we have to consider it. No matter which way the story goes, God includes her. God includes her story. And I don't know exactly if or how she practiced self-preservation, but she stands in this list, five women who are included in what really is a special place of honor. And as I read that and read their stories, and for the first time this week, I realized these aren't very clean, picture-perfect stories. I wondered if I have the ability to look at women and men who have stories that are a little messy and believe that they can be, that you can be, used by God in a beautiful way. There's five women, one virgin, four sexually broken women for different reasons. That seems about right. That seems about right, except we want to point the finger at that culture and say, wow, look how broken they are. But if you look at the statistics in our culture, it's pretty scary. One thing alone um, is this. We know that among college students, by the time they graduate in the United States, 80% of them are fully sexually active. Now, some of that is very consensual, but a lot of it is not. Now, one of the reasons that I really advocate for Christian evangelical education is this, that when you show up on a Christian campus like this one, the number is actually inversed. Only about 20% of individuals on evangelical Christian campuses are fully sexually active, with 80% of them having some level of integrity and sexual purity. That research isn't from a Christian institution, it's from Boston University by a woman named Donna Freitas. And you're living in a culture right here, a subculture of integrity and purity where you do have the opportunity and a little bit more sexual health and freedom to live in a way that's honoring to God. And I think you should be grateful for that. But I think we should also be mindful that everybody here isn't in a place of complete purity and we are in need of being ready to help the broken and maybe you're one of them. Do you look at those men and women whose stories you know that have brokenness in them? Do you look at them with eyes to believe that they can be used to? God did. Matthew did. And you know, I've been reasoning lately that the Apostle Paul was really good at it too. He saw people as what God could do with them, not where they had been or even what they were. And one evidence of that is that the Corinthian church had written to Paul and said, hey, things are kind of a zoo here morally. <laughs> like we're not doing things right, we think, and we have a lot of questions. And they write to him to confess their confusion. And one of the things is that one of the men is actually having sex with a mother-in-law. And Paul writes back to them with answers to their sexual confusion and their practical questions. Much of 1 and 2 Corinthians gives us really good sexual theology and how we can respond to the questions we face today. And when he begins the letter, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Saints? 
if I got a letter like that from someone that I had risen up, someone I had planted, someone I had discipled, I don't know if I could call them saints. I might call them scallywags. But he believes in what Christ can do in them and through them and for them. Do you have eyes to look at people whose stories you're hearing of sexual brokenness to believe that Christ can do something in them and through them? And the last thing I noticed as I looked at this list with these five precious women's names in it is this, that God acts in opposition to both cultural and religious disregard and mistreatment of women. The fact that these women's names are included is proof of that. Breaking literary traditions, standing up, you know, when Matthew wrote that, I'm sure there were people that said, what, dude, do you know the, the guidelines for how we write down who begot who? We don't include the women. And he said, no, no, God includes the women. I include the women. What a good man Matthew was to do that. And Jesus shows us that when he meets women. One of the women he meets is a Samaritan woman. You've heard her story over and over again, but maybe look at it with some fresh eyes with me today. She's a woman who's living with a man who is not her husband, and she's had other men in her life. We don't really know exactly what all of that means. There's lots of theories. I have my own. What we do know is that she was a woman who was very mistreated, and not just by men. She went to the well in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, at the noon hour, alone, instead of going in the cool of the morning with the other women, because they scorned her and shamed her, maybe with their glances, maybe with their words, I don't know. But she wasn't surrounded by women who had the eyes like Paul and God to see what could be. And so Jesus, the Bible says, had to pass through Samaria. No, he didn't. Mm -mm. Hardly anybody had to pass through Samaria going to where Jesus was headed. In fact, most of the Jews didn't go through Samaria. They went around Samaria. Jesus, um, returning to that area and going through, the, through, through Samaria was, was making a very big cultural statement in and of itself just walking through the city. Because Jews returning to their homeland viewed the Samaritans not only as the children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria, but he did. He goes through Samaria because he's going after one woman. And he's still alive and well, coming after one woman. And you know what? If you're in this room and you put your yourself in the category of being abused and you're male, you're not alone. It's not always just women who are victims at the hands of the sexually selfish. Jesus wants to go to her. Even though, in the views of every other Jew, she was ceremonially unclean, racially impure, religiously heretical, and therefore to be avoided. But you know what? She didn't just have to be a Samaritan to be avoided by a good Jew. She just had to be a woman. There's, I'm not sure if it's myth or fact, but I've read in multiple places that it's alluded to 
that the Pharisees took so carefully their vow to purity that they wouldn't talk to or look at a woman. And that sometimes that resulted in them closing their eyes when they saw one that might be tempting, to which I've read in multiple places that they were sometimes called the bloodied blind Pharisees. You know what Jesus called them? Whitewashed tombs. Empty, dead men. Jesus breaks religious, cultural, and racial traditions to identify himself with one broken woman whose story is a little bit messy. Do you? Do we? I've come to peace with the hard passages in the Bible about women and how they're treated because of one thing. I'm going to do something about it. And I want to ask you today to do something about it. I don't know which of those categories you put yourself in. Maybe you put yourself in the bystanders category. Guess what, bystanders? We don't get a buy. We are part of this story. Are you a good part of this story? Or are you, are, are you a passive bad part of the story? I have a dear friend. Her name's Jennifer Lyle, and I love her a lot. And she's been horribly abused. She's a survivor, and she's strong. And I believe in her, and I believe her, and I believe her story is going to unfold to be beautiful. And she cried out to me by text recently. She wrote this, silence is the fuel of sexual abuse and assault, regardless of whose silence it is. I'm not gonna be a woman who doesn't enter into the conversation that's happening right now, because my silence would speak louder than any words that I could speak. But I am gonna search the scriptures and use my words carefully and prayerfully, but I refuse to be silent. One of the things I'm doing right now to really um, address the conversation in our culture is not an easy thing. The Lord has shown me through loving letters written from lots of moms that the name of my ministry, Secret Keeper Girl, might not be the wisest name that could ever have been chosen. Now, we never expected Secret Keeper Girl 15 years later to be a ministry that was so strong. Uh, uh, seeing 80 to 100 cities a year where we minister to moms and teens. We never expected to write multiple books to minister to that age group. So we didn't really strategically pick a name. It just kind of happened. But as women have written to me letters, they say, we love your events, we love your resources, but is it possible that your, mess, your, your name could send my daughter the wrong message, that she should keep secrets? Some of them shouldn't be kept. Our secrets make us sick. And so we've made a decision as a ministry to rebrand. It's not an easy decision. It's gonna be an expensive, time-consuming decision. But in May, we're rebranding Secret Keeper Girl to True Girl. Now that might not seem like a big deal to you, but it's a big deal to me because I have to raise a lot of money to make it happen. I'm putting my money where my mouth is. I'm putting some actions to my concerns about what's happening in this culture. And I beg you as church leaders, future church leaders, ministry leaders, Never be afraid to say I was wrong. To my knowledge, no girl 
ever kept a secret from her mom because of the name of Secret Keeper Girl, but I think it's a legitimate concern. More often, we have heard that during moms attending our events or using our resources, in fact, they've told their mothers about abuse that's happened in their life. Quite the opposite has happened than what could be assumed. But I, if one girl took the message wrong, that would be one too many. And so we're doing something about it. What are you doing? Speak up. Identify with the broken. Look at them with eyes of expectation to be used by God in magnificent ways. I want to talk to you if you're an abuser. Confess. It is your only path to freedom. And it is a path to freedom. If you need help with the words, King David wrote some down for you in Psalm 51. Use the words, confess, have a clean heart. Don't add added abuse to someone you victimized by lying about your sin. And to the abused, I want you to know that your story has significance. I want you to know that your story matters. I want you to know that Jesus would take the long path or the hard path just to show up for you today. Satan spends so much of his time trying to convince us that our stories don't matter. But they do. It's written in Revelation that we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony outside of Jesus' death on that cross. We got nothing. But then he says, don't be afraid to say why this world needs my payment in blood. Tell your story. Tell your story. Your story has the ability to overcome the enemy. Your story has the ability to overcome the shame and the silence. You know what I've seen over and over again? When one woman in a room has the courage to tell her story, sitting right next to her is another woman that needed that courage so badly. I wanna beg you today to tell your story. If, if, if you're um, an, an abuser, I want to say this. Tell it today. Confess it today. You know, Pharaoh, when, when Moses came to Pharaoh and said, hey, Pharaoh, you've been sleeping on a bed of slimy frogs. I can do something about that. Pharaoh says, yes, please tell God to take the frogs away. Could you do it tomorrow? I think so many times we're like that with our sin and the ickiness all around us. We're laying in a bed of slime, and we want the freedom tomorrow. No, 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 no. You go confess today as fast as you can. And friends, if you are the abused, Jesus is not afraid of your story. Your story has the power to overcome the enemy. Don't be afraid to tell it, because we need it. This message was presented at Cedarville University. If you enjoyed it and want to be equipped and encouraged to help women, you might enjoy Dana's Masterclass in Sexual Theology and Healing. For three days, Dana and her husband Bob will personally mentor you as they prepare you to be an agent of healing and hope for both men and women, no matter their brokenness. Learn more at danagresh.com. This podcast was produced by Pure Freedom Ministries.